pre-PHP, what they showed was actually it's the, the plyometrics and the speed work that was most um, effective at, at improving outcome measures like sprint time and jump height compared to strength training in, in that younger group. And that's probably a lot to do with the hormone profile of a pre-PHV athlete. There's very low levels of testosterone, so they're not going to add muscle or adapt in the same way as someone who's post-PHV. And the, the research indicated that it was a combination of strength training and plyometrics and speed work post-PHV that was, that was most effective. It, it required that extra stimulus of strength training at that time to continue the progression. So I think understanding what's there in the research as well can help us to understand what we should be doing with, with athletes at different stages and, and what's most effective. That was James Baker, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 meter freestyle, and not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the feeling of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Simplyfaster.com also has the strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com's online store, Let's get on to the show. Welcome to another episode. Thanks for being here with us on this podcast journey. I really enjoy talking about the high-powered elements of explosive athletic training, things that help athletes to sprint faster, to jump higher, to throw harder, and to be physically dominant or as good physically as they can be in the sports that they are uh, participating in. Those things are really enjoyable to talk about. It's also really important to not just look at those ingredients in making the soup, so to speak, but also to look at the timing of those ingredients, not just in the course of a season, but also in an athlete's entire development from youth to a young scholastic to high school and college and then pro if they get there to know how do we distribute these training methods to optimally throughout an athlete's career. Our guest today for the show is athletic performance coach and long-term athletic development expert, James Baker. James is one of the co-founders of the LTAD, or Long-Term Athletic Development Network, and is currently a strength coach and performance support lead at the Aspire Academy in Doha, Qatar. James is not only a strength coach, but has a unique blend of skills, as also being a physical education teacher, a sports scientist, and a researcher. On the show today, James will be discussing the difference between early specialization and early engagement, and he'll be talking about the need for athletes to love and appreciate other forms of movement and play as their sport career unfolds. James will be taking on ideas in free-moving sports like parkour, in relation to team sports and ball sports, 
And then a main message of this show will be his ideas on progressing plyometrics, on strength training, on strength versus speed training emphasis over the course of a young athlete's development. And a main facet of this being their peak height velocity or PHV or their growth spurt. How do things change before, during, and after that growth spurt in what we're looking for athlete development? Wherever you are on the athlete training spectrum, if you do work with youth or high school athletes, or maybe it's uh, older and more mature athletes that might be in the professional ranks, there's a lot to learn by just being able to see the whole process. And I think we can gain a lot of wisdom regardless of where we are. There's also a lot of things that we can learn about training older athletes by seeing the response in younger athletes before they're starting to get a lot of muscle mass. There's a lot of really great implications in here. And I really enjoyed talking to James. This was a really smart show on a really important topic in athletic development. Let's get on to it. Episode 270 with Coach James Baker. In speaking about the Premier League, I think about, well, what does it take to eventually get there? Like kids have to start at a particular early level and there's a lot of pressure to make the next level. I know in the United States, there's immense pressure on kids to make the next level of club sport, etc., I mean, is there anything that fundamentally, like, I know that we all try to do a great job with our, and I know we're going to get into the best way to develop strength and plyometrics and speed and progress that throughout the years. But sometimes I feel like we're a little bit at the mercy of these, these greater systems too. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Is there anything you feel like if you could be the, the grand master of all these systems and pull some dials, is there any key changes you think could really help kids out as they go throughout that transition? I think helping helping the kids to understand the pathway of the processes and the, the selection and the deselection processes, I think, are it, it is important. And you know, for a lot of these kids, I think the danger is they wrap up their identity in being a sports person. You know, and there's been some some really sad and tragic circumstances with some UK footballers that have left the system, and you know, they've they've not coped with being dropped from the system. So I think if any, I think they're doing a great job. I mean, if you see in terms of the output of footballer, now the level of the footballer that's coming out and playing for England is very high. We've got some superb talent submerged and played in the World Cup this year. But there's obviously, for every kid that makes it, there's, there's many kids that don't. So I think if anything, it needs to change. It's probably the support network around those kids that don't and helping them to, to transition to other clubs or other careers and making sure that they're looked after. I think that would probably be the biggest thing in the system and making sure that there's practitioners like psychologists around them to help them manage the stress and manage transitions into different levels with new coaches and navigate periods of injury and those kind of things. Yeah, I think that's massive. I, I know I have all these questions for you on like, all right, how do we progress speed and how do we progress? I mean, and those are fun to talk about, right? But I mean, with the players even that do make it, mental health is such a, a big issue. And we don't even talk about sure. the people who don't, right? I mean, do you guys at the LTED network talk about like, almost like ways through the system to also re relieve the pressures? I mean, I guess you were just alluding to it, right? Like, but what are some like long-term just general development concepts that might exist from helping athletes deal with the pressure? Is it just getting the right people in there that they can talk to? Or are there any other concepts with that kind of thing? Yeah, I think having the right people for them to talk to is really important. Recognizing when people need that kind of support as well and understanding, helping them to manage their expectations 
around the likelihood of progression into a higher level of the system, particularly if they're in a very competitive sport like football, soccer in uh, US terms. Uh, I think understanding those risks and, and helping them also and understand that there's more to life than sport, that there's, you know, that they should have other interests away from it and take time where obviously they need to be focused on their sport, but have time also away from their sport when they can with their friends, you know, it might be off season or whenever, have other activities that they uh, take an interest in. And I think we can help that by ensuring that the sports programs are to an extent multi-sport and they get to experience other things and switch off from the stress of their sport and also equipping them physically. We talk a lot about physical literacy and being a good mover, essentially, and confident to do many things. And I think if we can do that for people that are in any kind of single sport pathway, then at least when they get spat out of the other end if it's you know they haven't been successful that they can they have the movement skills and capabilities to pick up something else um, and we see lots of examples um, over the years of uh, one obvious example we had lots of girls that joined the pathway who were gymnasts and the gymnasts really struggled with some of the ball sports just you know basketball soccer any anything so they w- really weren't confident in in that environment amazing gymnasts but they're not going to be gymnasts forever so what other things can we help them develop to make sure that they can transition into something else that was something that i was at rafe kelly who's been on this podcast his return to the source retreat about a month ago a little less maybe and one of the things i got out of that was just the idea of the importance of embodying uh, basically embodying how do I want to phrase this? Like basically just the importance of a physical practice as just a means of just being generally healthy and that not even being mm-hmm. like fitness per se, just things that you enjoy doing that are physical. And I've yeah. seen a lot of athletes who, especially those who specialize, they finally finish their sport. I saw a lot of this in swimming because it's just such an intense sport. People do in double days. Yeah. By the time they're done, like they're done, they don't want to look at that black line again. And I always... Mm-hmm. felt like in a sport like that and i'm sure many others just cultivating a general love for something else that's not your sport that you might just like doing and and i always enjoyed in the sports i've worked with just playing games that have nothing to do with the sport and I, yeah. that probably don't have anything to do with transfer but they're just fun and people enjoy doing it and i always felt like that was even if you yeah. might not be able to say this transfers i felt like that was helpful yeah we did plenty of that lots of i used to do a lot of parkour and we used to make Ninja Warrior courses and all sorts of stuff that we used to uh, we used to get the kids to do. And yeah, just a complete break away from traditional sport and the the pressures that were associated with them. Yeah, the uh, I we have a, one of those kind of Ninja Warrior type parks near my house, and I'll take my my children there who are ages three and five, and they're like begging me to go back. They're like, Dad, can we go back to the park? Yeah. And then. But I'm also at the same time, I'm coaching my daughter's, uh, I signed up to do it, coach my daughter's five-year-old soccer team, which is, I mean, calling it a soccer team, I feel like at that age is not even really to me a a thing because the kids don't under, and I'm just trying to think about like, if all these kids need all these adults to tell them where to go constantly and to, 
you know, are they really like playing? Mm-hmm. Like if it's interesting to think what they would naturally come up with as a fun movement practice of adults were never involved, you know, maybe they'll mirror what they see the bigger kids doing. But I just think about adult involvement early on and how that forms their perception of movement and sport and is this fun and rewarding and everything that goes with that down the line. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, I like. I didn't know you had um had done some parkour. That's awesome. Um, I think that's like uh, uh the epitome of just doing something just for the enjoyment of it. Absolutely, and that was it. I felt like it was a a great way for. It's, it's kind of a blend of gymnastics and parkour. So we had some more traditional gymnastic components, but then built it into sequences and obstacle courses that just great challenge for athleticism and to be able to link and coordinate these big gross motor skills. Uh, For some of the kids that had only ever played team sports, it was really a a push outside of their comfort zone as well. So there's psychological challenges in there as as well to take on some of these movement skills and and become a little bit more uncomfortable in in some of those uh, movements, but stretching them and making them a better athlete in the process, I think. Yeah, it is. It is interesting you say that. I was just having a discussion with a neighbor of mine who's a who was. I mean, he is, he's in his mid thirties. He's a was a skateboarder growing up, and mm-hmm. I just for fun, I've been skateboarding a little bit around the neighborhood recently, just to try to not do all the typical, I guess you could say, speed stuff, and try to just have fun with something that's different. But I was talking with yeah. him, and I was I was like, did anyone who was in your skateboarding group play? like a team sport growing up. And he was like, no, those were the kids who didn't play the team sports, you know? And it's mm-hmm. me, it's kind of the same thing with parkour. I, Cause I can see that I can see like a parkour almost being all the, a lot of the opposite, completely opposite skills as, as team sports in many ways. But mm-hmm. that almost that being said, like that almost would be like the best thing for a team sport athlete, depending on where they are in the season and, and that kind of, you know, or if they're off season or, or whatever it is. Yeah. It's definitely a nice uh, break from from the sport, but yeah, it's pick it, picking the right time of year to do it. I yeah, think. you couldn't take like the Premier League athletes out and say start doing this. <laughs> that would be a bad, <laughs> a bad idea. Maybe not. Uh, do you think, James? So you mentioned this. I, I'm really curious what you think about this. Is you know you mentioned, and obviously like looking at a soccer player or so many sports, like it's going to be a specialized athlete at some point, more likely than not. And mm-hmm. so often we say, oh, you can't, you know, you have to play as many sports as you can. And I do think that's a good thing. But do you think it's possible to have a healthy and like specialized athlete where they maybe started playing their main sport at, I don't know, 12 or 13 and it's pretty much fine? Like, is that I mean, just because I think that's something that's argued a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like, what are your thoughts on, on yeah. that? I think it depends on on the sport. A lot of the time, I think if you're dealing with a very skill-based sport, let's say something like table tennis, squash, soccer, I think those are sports that need early engagement to get very, very good at it. If you look at the players that are coming through the system into the the Premier League, they've got players from under nine through to under 23 in the academy systems. So, yeah, I think it's a case of early engagement, but not early specialization. Getting them in front of great coaches that can teach them what they need to know to be outstanding sports people in, in their chosen sport. But 
making sure that it's not the only thing that they do and giving them those diverse experiences that hopefully if they've got a good physical education program at the school, like that should do quite a lot of that because they'll experience different sports through the year outside of their, I guess, main sport or the one that they've been identified as being particularly talented for. I think there's other sports where I think you can see it in sports like athletics where specialising early really isn't any kind of advantage. You know, it seems like the research that's coming out now, there's some research by a guy called Phil Kearney. Uh, They looked at the progression of athletes from the top 20 at under 13 to the top 20 at a senior level. And the progression was about 9% of men and maybe a, a slightly higher percentage of girls that progressed from under 13 top ranks to to senior top ranks and that probably is because that sport is much more physically dominant i'm not saying there isn't a skill component to it they are highly skilled in their events but the physical qualities create a, a big advantage to those that have matured earlier in the teenage years but they're not necessarily the ones that go on and progress so i think it's a case of it depends on the sport uh, but i think the best practice is engage early in many things uh, if you get pulled into a talent pathway yeah take advantage of it but try and keep a range of things going and most of the premier league clubs and places like that that do engage them early have multi-sport programs if they're training full-time to to diversify what they're doing oh that's cool so in like the perfect world or or well it's interesting that they're seeing that because i just feel the perception i get is just these athletes just go they have to specialize really early and then that's all they do and there's not much of a chance mm-hmm. to play anything else well what would you if you i mean i know it's hard to say and i definitely agree for more of the the skill sports but let's say it was a sport like very high skill demand like like tennis or soccer mm-hmm. or anything or yeah table tennis uh, what would be, in in your view, what would be the age where it's okay to start specializing in that, where that's pretty much all you're doing outside of, I guess, maybe recreationally doing, ideally recreationally doing some other sports just to keep the mind and the body a little more diverse? I really don't know on those on those sports what the right what the right answer is. I mean, to be, if you're talking about being really successful in table tennis, I mean. There's kids in China starting at five, six years old, and there's a, a hell of a lot of kids doing mm. doing that. So I think to be really successful, you almost you, you've got to get those those hours in. Um, I think if we're just talking in general, I think allowing kids to be kids and play multiple things as as long as possible is the best the best route. But that doesn't mean they have to be participating in structured sport like structured competitive sport they could be playing those sports just pick up games of basketball or softball or baseball whatever it is i think yeah i think we're 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 programmed to think that they need to be doing it everything now in you know led by a coach but there's just so many things that can develop i I know like from my side i played a high level of rugby but i didn't pick up a rugby ball till 15 really I played a lot of basketball, which developed my handling skills. I played a lot of football, which had play, uh, developed my my kicking. Did various multiple multiple things. So, in terms of the the question specifically around those sports, I mean, the coaches will tell you they need to engage 
in the sport very early, like seven, eight years old. The coaches that I work with that are in squash and table tennis, and they want them engaged with the sport in that seven or eight years of age category. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, but certainly they're saying that to produce the talent, it's going to take a number of years in those sports to get them up to a level where they can compete with the best. And if they're starting to specialise in table tennis or or squash at a later stage, they're possibly going to struggle to make some of the some of the higher levels unless they're transferring from a sport that has a similar you know, hand-eye coordination demand. So maybe they're coming from badminton and they're moving into squash or something. So the suggestion from the coaches that we work with are very experienced that it needs to be very early in those sports. I guess the trick probably then is getting the early engagement when needed without the pressure to specialize in that sport. Yes. That's yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. And that's what we try to do at Aspire is we have a, a fantastic facility for table tennis, but we also have a gymnastics area that the boys will use. They get an opportunity to do multiple sports throughout the year. They have their strength and conditioning to support their physical development. They do play a lot of table tennis, but they have other things around it that they're able to do and built into warm-ups, things like football and speed agility games and those kind of things. So it's it's a diverse experience for them, even though they are you know, being selected and engaged in a specific sport quite early. They have other experiences. And I think that's that's the key that's the key is if they are engaging early especially you know by definition early specialization is that you only participate in one single activity for the entire year so as long as we can build systems where that isn't happening by diversifying the opportunities then i think we're on, we're on the right track uh, to doing a better a better job than just solely one thing all, all the time yeah. Would you say, and this makes me think about something you said early on with just like the mental health and the support as athletes are going through, th- through the sport and then departing from it. Would you say that that diversification of movement, I would imagine that has a pretty strong and positive impact on athletes' mental health as well as, as they go throughout and then eventually separate from their sport because they did all these other things yeah. that they enjoyed? Yeah, I think they're, I think they're less likely to experience the mental burnout of just doing the same thing for years and years on end. You know, these pathways are seven, eight, nine years long in, in some of these uh, sports systems. That's a long time to be doing the same thing over and over again. So I think it helps them from a, a mental perspective, but it also helps them from a physical perspective because it's... It's not such a monotonous training load on the body. Early specialization is something which is associated with a lot more overuse injuries because the body is experiencing the same patterns and the same stresses again and again. You know, you mentioned tennis. I remember working with tennis players back in 2010 and, and we had some young girls come in that had stress fractures on their ribs and their feet from just how much tennis they played. And they were sent to us from a physio that said, look, these girls are not coping with the volume of work that they're being exposed to by the coaches. We need to get them stronger and a little bit more robust to be able to tolerate that. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely um, an issue. I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. 
several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. While talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine, but I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the Shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. With the games too, you, you're talking about this with like the young athletes, these young su- or these super skill-heavy sports where there absolutely needs to be an early engagement to be elite someday. What are your thoughts on, and I think you've mentioned this already, but like older athletes, more mature, even athletes who are like in their 20s or pro, semi-pro level, what's your thoughts on integrating other movements in, in the, the scope of maybe like a week-to-week basis? I know Dr. Yesis, when he was on, talked about I think it was the Russian volleyball team came to play the United States in the 70s. And before they kicked our ass, they were playing soccer in the morning for like mental relaxation or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what are your thoughts on, I mean, using like other sports in the warm up for uh, or the gym or just general games or anything like that once an athlete is in more mature? Or is that something that, I mean, I guess it's probably hard, right? Because the, the strength coach would have to have some serious pull with the sport coach <laughs> or, or whatnot. But as you're, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that in the, uh, in the higher performance setting? Yeah, I, th- I think games and play still have a place, you know, to release some, of the, release some of the pressure and break the monotony. I think it's just about the, you're going to spend a much larger percentage of the, the training time in, in gamified scenarios with younger kids because they, they just, they're not going to buy into the structured training. They're not mature enough mentally they don't have the yeah the the patience for it the attention span whereas when you get to the older age obviously you can spend a lot more time with structured training um, and then engage with it because they understand the purpose it's their profession or their hobby that they're really choosing to do but that doesn't mean that they also don't want to have fun and just relax sometimes so i think play and gamification still has a, a really important but a lesser Mm. percentage of time allocated to it at at the professional level yeah yeah i I definitely could see that out i know jeremy frisch when he was on the podcast was talking about that kind of that age Mm. where the switch really starts to happen where athletes start to learn formal training they learn to start to handle formal training formal training it doesn't have to be a game and i think i don't think a lot of people consider that that switch over very well in the sense mm. of i see a lot of adults who treat very young athletes as if all oh, that should be a really structured practice with all the things uh, older athletes could do and to really consider yeah. when that switch will happen i think is important yeah i think it, i think around the sort of time of, of once they've gone through puberty and i was talking about it on another podcast the other day where they, they get to a point where they're 14, 15, and they're a little bit too cool for school. And the games all of a sudden are like, why are we, why are we just playing games? I, I want to do some training. I want to get on with this. 
you know, so there is a, a, they respond then to maybe different things, more like challenges, less of the games and the fun, more a challenge around something. Can you hold this for a certain amount of time? Can you jump these, uh, these hurdles, these boxes? They, they seem to go through a phase where they engage less with the games that we're doing and they want a bit more structured training, possibly because they're a bit more motivated by their appearance and their aesthetic aesthetics than they are there um just having fun anymore they want to get in the gym and they want to do a bit more work on the uh on the guns and things like that yeah speaking of that uh, it's interesting because you you've talked about like the idea of setting an athlete up not just for their sport but also for for life and to enjoy movement and i've seen Mm -hmm. i know every group that i've worked with throughout my time in coaching has always really enjoyed it when we did decide to play a game that wasn't their sport that was just something fun I have known of groups that have actually on on the more developed level who actually didn't like playing other games. And it makes me mm-hmm. wonder if that was and, and that group in particular that I know of was a very pressured group, very pressured mm-hmm. growing up to be elite. And it's almost like you would think maybe that would be the, the ultimate negative consequence when even playing a different game that is supposed to be fun isn't fun anymore just from mm-hmm. at, at that at that older age or something like that. I think if if you've got people who who don't have to have fun, something's gone wrong somewhere. If they if they uh, can't, yeah, just relax and and do something different, that that would concern me. But I think there's also a, a, this. It comes down to reading the groups, reading the group and and what they engage with and what they don't, and trying different things. And I think if you can explain to them why you're maybe using a game that it has a specific purpose that is actually beneficial. It just doesn't look like the game that they know, but it contains maybe it's a, a change of direction agility game that contains movements that they actually execute and, and need to use in, in their sport. And it's just an opportunity to practice some of those movements that are maybe going to allow them to, I don't know, say it's a team sport to create space or evade defenders and actually when you put the ball in play with the sport it's a distraction from from those movements whether it slows them down or something else uh, distracts them it's uh yeah i think it's it's how we present those games to some of the groups as well yeah for it's important yeah for some of those groups that might have been a little burnt out presenting it in a way that it almost you, know, you would almost have to trick them into having fun a little bit <laughs> mm. um, and doing some of those same <laughs> movements Let's get to some of the elements of like common training means. So strength training, plyometrics, yeah. speed training, and those windows. And I know a lot yeah. of this probably comes in uh, like the track and field context, but I think track is mm-hmm. a great sport to probably weigh when to have a lot of these things in a program too, if we want athletes to achieve a high physical outputs. I'm yeah. curious your thoughts on, and I'm sure there's been a lot of discussion on these things, but just thoughts on when to implement strength training in young athletes regimen and then when to intensify it i think they're probably two different things on a level so what are your thoughts on strength training implementation in the long-term athletic development process yeah my my thoughts on it that it's something you could commence at any age but it's important to consider what the most appropriate starting point is for that athlete and then progress it gradually uh we've just actually created a youth physical development model that breaks down all of these categories uh, strength, power, speed, agility, and we describe how we would 
progress it. Something like strength training for me, it's about starting from body weight and progressing towards barbells over time. And it's about it's about earning the right to progress by demonstrating technical competency, building volume and adding complexity to the technical execution of the exercises. So maybe moving from a static split squat to a to a lunge, to a walking lunge, to a reverse lunge, all under relatively low load before we make a, a step into really externally loading them. We have used various systems over over time. Calvin Giles movement competency assessment as a as a technical score of the quality of their movement in in the base patterns, squatting, pushing, lunging, hinging, bracing, rotating. And then we've used Dan Baker's bodyweight strength assessment, which assesses again a, a series of strength exercises, and based on the number of repetition number of repetitions that you can do against your body weight, it then determines whether or not you're ready to progress to externally loaded training. But typically, the externally loaded work will begin to intensify after the uh, adolescent growth spurt when the athlete has accumulated a training history that they've earned the right to progress technically um, and also then yeah they can tolerate and and cope with it sometimes these younger athletes have the the capability to do some of these movements but with load but they don't have the body to tolerate doing that with frequency so i think that's an important thing to consider with the strength training yeah it's one anecdote or a picture or image i have in my head is i I've seen athletes in an athletic performance setting, like age 15, super skinny, just going in really trying to bench as much as they can, bench press, mm-hmm. and they're working with like 65, 75 pounds on the bar. And I think to myself, I don't think, I mean, I don't think at that weight, it's not going to like hurt them or anything in the sense of any long-term development. But I would just think like, this is just a cultural movement. Like if you really want to be mm-hmm. getting stronger, you should just be cranking out tons of body weight, like tons of push-up variations and, and be able to tolerate a frequency of it. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's just interesting. I just For think sure. people just want to put a bar in their hands. It's as if they, I think there's a strong cultural thing and the way people measure themselves against each other is a big one, but like, yeah, with the mm-hmm. body, I just think you can go so much farther on body weight than people tend to think. Before Definitely. You- what Definitely. are maybe you mentioned it already a little bit, but like, what are some of the specific, uh, I guess, standards to earn the bar that, like, uh, like in terms of amount of like single leg strength or push ups or upper body? Uh, what are some of those examples that you would utilize uh, to earn, the, earn a barbell? I think the within Dan Baker's framework, it's I think it's six or more full pull ups. 40 bodyweight squats with good technique with 10% of body mass just held on the chest with a mm. with a plate. So you know, if you've got a 50 kilo kid, they're going to be holding a five kilo plate. Push-ups, it's like 30 plus. And I think 25 and above is sufficient, but it goes up to maybe 30, 35. Uh, single leg squats, five on each leg, one stood up on a box. So you've got clearance down below to for, for the the free leg and then i can't remember what the sit-up score is but the plank is uh, like to be able to hold a plank for two minutes so those are some some loose standards if you're going for just a, a pure volume based assessment another easy way for me to to use to progress things is you know, have a leveled system of exercises within each category of the strength movements 
And then we make a simple rule-based system of you need to be able to complete three sets of 12 or 15 reps, whatever the rep range is, but you need to be able to do that with a high level of technical competency against our five key technical points. And if you can do that, then you can add a little bit more load, but then we're going to guide the load progression by maybe, you know, two and a half to five kilograms or something when they progress up to the to the next level, or maybe it's a, a more technically challenging exercise, should we say. Sure. So they're just some guides, some easy guides as to how we would do it. And then, yeah, it's based around that earning the, the right to progress. I've heard the anecdote. It was Chad Wesley Smith of Juggernaut Training Systems, who I heard mention it is it, when they, people are using a bar, like I believe Olympic weightlifters and maybe Poland was the country. I'm not sure, but it was something to the tune of until they're like 13 or 14 years old, probably under the peak height like t spacing like they were limited or capped with how much weight they could use it was something like maybe 50 75 percent of their body weight but then they got a, yeah. a techniques a technique score <laughs> and they get like yeah. judges it's like gymnastics so you get a technique score for the lift not they don't care what Absolutely. the weight you lift and i, I great way a great way to do it yeah i just think about uh it, 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 oh, sorry go ahead I was going to say it comes down to what you emphasize as a coach. If you, with those younger athletes, if all you talk about is you know, relative strength levels at two times body weight and those kind of things, then that's what people start chasing after. If you emphasize technique as a as the primary thing, like say a, a scoring system related to that rather than multiples of body weight, I think it's a, definitely a, a good way to approach it. Yeah, I think in a lot of training systems where it's uh, maybe a private training facility or someone has the job of a, a conditioning coach, strength and conditioning coach, uh, I think maybe there's like the feeling of, oh, we need to show progression. I need to show yeah. my job. I need to validate my job by showing progression in these things. But I just think it's 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 interesting to think about. That just is interesting to me, the way that people would define that versus I mean, what would a, I guess, a parent think or the, so a coach think if you're getting a, a technique score or a, uh, even just body weight? I mean, I, I again, I think body weight stuff is amazing, but it's just, it's interesting to me, I guess, what people associate with, oh, I need to be doing this or that at this time. Yeah. I think it's the coach's job, though, to explain where some of these things like the technical score, why are they important? They're important because... If your technique's really good in the long run, you're going to be able to get a lot stronger and stay injury free. So it's mm -hmm. explaining how these things fit together in a longer term plan and pathway so that they don't look at them and just go, why the hell are we getting a technique score? I just need to be shifting some weight. It's like, well, you, you do need to be shifting some weight eventually, but you need to be shifting weight well if you're really going to benefit from it and, and not get hurt. So I think it's how well, how well the coach can communicate the bigger picture plan, not just what's happening on a, a specific coaching session or monthly block, however you set your training up. I think that's something which once parents and coaches understand the big picture, they'll buy into a lot of that stuff a lot better. Yeah, I agree. I think with the body weight stuff too, I think it's easy. A lot of athletes just want to work hard too. They want to continue to set records and bests and they're very driven. And I found that I really like using long isometric holds for that. Just saying, hey, can you hold a two-minute lunge, a three-minute lunge, a four-minute lunge? And 
or those yeah. and at some point it becomes absurdity if you're like oh, we'll hold it 10 minutes <laughs> yeah, it's, but on the on that lower level or adding light weights uh, i think there's a lot of um really beneficial adaptations yeah that can be implemented before any sort of really intensification of the barbell is needed mm-hmm. for sure there's there's lots of ways to progress and overload whether it's tempo or iso holds or more dynamically challenging things it's yeah there's there's loads you can do before you have to really push it and the research the scientists examined what's most effective in those different ph v groups so if we look at pre-phv and circa phv and post phv well pre-phv what they showed was actually it's the the plyometrics and the speed work that was most um, effective at, at improving outcome measures like sprint time and jump height compared to strength training in in that younger group and that's probably a lot to do with the hormone profile of a pre-phv athlete there's very low levels of testosterone so they're not going to add muscle or adapt in the same way as someone who's post-phv and the, the research indicated that it was a combination of strength training and plyometrics and speed work post phv that was that was most effective it, it required that extra stimulus of strength training at that time to continue the progression so i think understanding what's there in the research as well can help us to understand what we should be doing with with athletes at different stages and, and what's most effective so for me some of the guys that we work with in the that are pre phv yet yeah, they're doing strength training but they're learning to strength train they're that we're not it's not where we're getting our primary adaptations from for them that's coming from the plyometric work within the session and the speed work within the session or the week whereas the the post phv kids within the group we might if they've worked through the appropriate progressions and they've earned the right then maybe we are pushing the strength side a little bit more in order to to drive those adaptations that we want and that we know that they can benefit from that type of training because they are mature and they have that hormone profile to uh, adapt to that's really interesting i I hadn't heard that that's actually it's funny i was actually just going to ask you when talking about the strength training i've seen gyms and sometimes i don't even know who makes some of these like they say optimal windows for whatever ability Mm. and I, I love the example you just gave. I saw a gym one time, maybe six years ago, and they had like a, oh, there's a peak window for strength that's open at, I don't know, it was 12 to 14 or something, which would completely be contradicted yeah. by what you just said. But I think they were using yeah. it just to get kids in the gym to lift weight. You know what I'm saying? And so they're I- probably, They're probably referring to the, the Bali model of LTAD, which does state there's specific windows of opportunity for speed and strength and various other things. I think that's kind of gone out of the window with the youth physical development model from Rodri Lloyd and John Oliver, which basically says we need to be training all of these qualities all the time, but it's how you train them in the different phases of early childhood, and middle childhood, adolescence and adulthood. It's, there's an evolution of the methods in that time um, and yeah what we adapt best to at different times will will, will vary so we can shift the emphasis onto uh, different components as as we require but certainly from my experience to produce a high level of strength power speed and agility it, it just requires a, a consistent approach over a, over a very long period of time there's no magic window and 
you know, what happens if you get a kid who missed the window because they didn't get into sport late, but you don't bother training it. Of course you don't. You, you get on and you start building them up from, from the foundations in, in each of those key physical training areas. And yeah, the windows of opportunity thing is it's, it's there, but I think it's, there's definitely periods where they will adapt more to those types of training stimulus, but I think the windows of opportunity thing just yeah, sends a bit of the wrong message, I think. Yeah, that's interesting. So what you were saying, with, so before peak height, PHV, or uh, what's that V stand yeah. for in PHV? Velocity, right? PHV, peak, yeah, peak height velocity and peak weight velocity and what those points are in an adolescent boy or girl is the peak height velocity is the the rate of the highest rate of growth in their in their life apart from when they were first born and they were a baby and it's a, it typically happens on average at 11 to 12 for girls and 13 to 14 for boys and then peak weight velocity is the body mass equivalent so it's the change in their their body weight they'll hit on average around 9 to 10 centimeters in that year and eight to 10 kilograms in, in that year. So huge shifts in stature and, and body mass within a 12 month period that they then have to adapt to. So you were saying that before that peak height velocity, that they're, I mean, it's always good to train speed, <laughs> but you were saying that sure. compared to weights, like speed is the, the is, is really the, the highest order of what they need at that age to improve all ships, to rise all ships is, is speed versus where more of the hormones come in later that's when the strength can be more effective yeah the the adaptations to all forms of, of training in that pre-phd phase are, are predominantly neural adaptations not structural muscle mass gains it's better recruitment of of muscle uh, fibers and obviously post-phd the adaptations can come from increases in muscle mass and cross-sectional area of muscles and thicker tendons and changes in muscle architecture later so i think it's yeah it's it's knowing that and I'm, I'm going by what we've read in the research the speed and the plyometrics were shown in an eight-week training program to be a more effective way of improving performance in sprinting and jumping tasks than a combined method where strength training was was really emphasized but that doesn't mean don't do strength training it just means know where you're getting your best adaptations from and, and uh, emphasize accordingly i think is the way that i i take it gotcha interesting so with the ply well actually i'll ask you a question i was going to ask about plyometrics but I'll, I'll ask you a question then it makes you think too about athletes who as they get older and more mature like i i it was ross jeffs who was on the show talking about the different archetypes of sprinters you know, the concentric mm -hmm. and elastic and metabolic and it makes me think even there, like some, like an elastic sprinter can't handle as much heavy weight training as a concentric muscle driven sprinter. So it's almost like you're seeing shades of that. Even once you have a mature athlete, those athletes who just naturally have less muscle mass and just don't grow muscle as easily yeah. to, to really hit them hard with strength training to say, well, get stronger. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't end up yeah. working that well. No, exactly. It's, it's exactly that. And I, I mean, I, I've been working with Ross for the last two years in, in Aspire, I do the S&C for his, his sprinters. So we've talked about the typing a lot and we've looked at some of the younger guys that are coming up through 
had discussions around whether we think they're concentric, elastic, or more metabolic in their approach. But both of us agree that really you've got to wait until they're through that growth spurt and they've had time to adapt to that new body essentially that they're carrying around a dramatically different body within a within a 12 to 18 month period that it's when they get through that that then you can really start to see what they can do and i think particularly when you're looking at things like their elastic qualities if we take we've just done some research on 10-5 rebound jump with kids of different state at different stages of maturity and what, what you can actually see in in it is from pre-PHV to, to circa PHV, there's there's an increase in the ground contact time, the average ground contact time. And then the ground contact time once they're from circa PHV, once they drop into post-PHV, those ground contact times start to come back down again. Hmm. And it's, it's such a rapid period of, of change. You think if you take a kid on average, let's say the average size of the kids coming into our groups are probably they start at around 45 kilograms well when they go through phv and they add 10 kilograms that's a 20 percent increase in uh, in body mass within a 12 month period and it takes time for the the whole system to adapt so they become a little a little bit slower off the ground because they're they're still having to deal with it and i think it's only really when they've been carrying that extra body weight around for you know, 6, 12, 18 months or more that the whole system is adapting to that additional weight. So we see in, the, in a lot of the tendon research that tendon system reaches adult levels at around 15 years old, which would coincide with being post-PHV and, and post-peak weight velocity by about a year, a year and a half, depend, maybe longer depending on, on the individual. But I think it makes me think of Alex Natira shared a, a video this last um, week around a hypergravity situation walking around with a weight vest. Well, essentially, like a kid who's just gone through puberty, they might as well be carrying, they're carrying an extra 10 kilos around. It's the equivalent of one of those weight vests. So they're in hypergravity conditions potentially for you know, a period while their body is adapting to that. And this is possibly why we see when they hit post-PHV that they're then able to be more reactive after is that they've had time to adapt to that mass that they're carrying around yeah that's that's really interesting with that like decrease in reactivity in that time period and so i wanted mm-hmm. to ask you about plyometrics and i think this will be the last question we have time for is sure. so one of the the first like legit plyometric program i did as a young athlete i was like 15 or 16 it was called the science of jumping and it was it was a depth jump program and i it helped yeah. me a lot i think i started it right about now that I'm thinking about my own peak height velocity, I started it when I was probably within an inch of my final height. So probably a good time to start it now that I'm thinking about it, or at least not terrible. But then, you know, I started still really early. I mean, 15 and 16 is pretty early to start that stuff. But I was I'm like, wow, it's a good thing I was done growing just about when I did that. (laughs) Anyways, in the program, it was interesting because they said, uh, and and I want to ask you about this because I'm not sure what I think about this, but they had said that young kids and they had in the video like 11 and 12 year olds doing like low depth jumps and they were saying mm-hmm. oh it's a great time to train this window and i don't know i was just thinking about well one i was thinking about what you said with the speed and plyos and those things for the younger kids who aren't like they don't have the hormones and they aren't growing a lot of muscle and but 
then at the on the other end, isn't that like an early intensification, right? Like it's it's doing a depth jump early. Where are you going to go from here? I mean, obviously you'll get a higher box as you get older and whatnot. But yeah. what I'm thinking about now, based off what you said, was well. For sure, you probably don't want to be doing that stuff in that peak when you're really growing fast. And like you said, and you're gaining weight and your RSI is going down. It's kind of so anyways, just thoughts on progressing plyometrics as an athlete is going through those developmental periods. Yeah, for me, it's it's a similar kind of approach to the strength training. It's about for me, you see a lot of the basic S&C circles of jumping and landing, jumping, jumping up to boxes landing from boxes and I think what you have to have alongside that at the very early stages is the low amplitude plyometrics like Bouchek Snader's lower leg conditioning type drills or Dan Paff's rudiment where kids are learning to contact the ground they're learning to be reactive but they're doing it at a height that allows them to be or from an amplitude if they're jumping or, or from a height that allows them to be reactive and learn to be fast off the ground and then just gradually progressing the amplitudes and to different directions of travel, but starting out with stuff like hopscotch-type activities and just low-level pogo jumps. And I think with younger guys and as they go into the growth spurt, I think using those styles of jumps like pogo jumps, those become intensified naturally by the athlete because they're getting stronger and more powerful naturally with with growth and maturation so they're they're jumping higher but it's always constrained by their own ability so if they they can't jump and ex- they they can if they're doing like a pogo jump they're not exceeding their own jumping capacity like they are from a depth jump and that's a big thing for me with working with large groups is if i program pogos you know, maybe one kid's only jumping 15 centimeters, but there's another kid on the other side who's much more mature and more powerful. He might be doing pogos with a, with a 40 to 45 centimeter jump height. So it's easier when you're working with large groups to progress plyometrics using those types of types of exercises. And then I think I, I use what I would term a, using Boo and Mike's terminology, like a depth jump is something where you're dropping from a box that exceeds the height of your counter movement jump, something that you can't produce yourself. So but I still use a variety of things like low hurdle hops using some of those SAQ type hurdles, like 30 centimeters and drop jumps off a 10 to 20 centimeter box that allow them to to learn that skill and be reactive off the ground in a in a different task. Um, but it's just progressing the yeah, the intensity of those jumps and the the impacts that they're experiencing very gradually over time and developing the competency in plyometrics to make sure that with different types of jumps, they're able to use the right type of foot contact, for example. So if they've got a, they when, they, when they're learning to pogo, that they're doing that with on the ball of their foot when they're learning when they're learning to bound horizontally they they know how to make a rolling foot contact or when they're doing their rudiment drills they're much more flat-footed in their in their contact so it's developing those competencies so that and slowly increasing the volume and exposure to the stresses of, of the plyometric ten the, the plyometric uh, work so we're not causing injuries to tendons and, and things like that when they're going through the growth spurt 
And then I think when they go through that growth spurt, when that body mass increase comes and there's changes in leg length, those things that they will pull the reactivity down. And if we're if we're using pogo style jumps, we can just get we can still allow them to be reactive by not maybe jumping so high. They can still learn to be be reactive with their new body weight and then gradually build things back up again. And then once you've got all of those competencies and from a technical perspective, they've worked through all the progressions from a plyometric perspective in the different categories, then you can get to your depth jumps and your big hurdle jumps and your extended bounds and those kind of things more confidently and, and know that you're not going to expose them to something that they're just not ready to tolerate. So it's it's built again, it comes back to I think capabilities and capacities and some of these kids, yeah, they can do some of those things early, but they'll show you the capability to do it, but they don't have the capacity to tolerate it over a long period of time. And and that's where I think the injuries will will start to come. Gotcha. That makes perfect sense, especially with like the depth jump and and so oftentimes those would be done higher than or just l- looking at how high kids can pogo naturally and thinking about that as a down the road a potential intro to where the depth jump uh, box might start or how that coincides with it. It's- yeah, I think I was going to say I think bringing in gradually bringing in as you progress to altitude uh, using altitude drops and things from boxes that exceed the athlete's counter movement jump like they're appropriate early on to give them earlier on, should I say, um, to depth jumping. You know, can they stop and absorb a drop from specific box heights before asking them to drop and rebound? I think is a, let's see how they are absorbing the force from that drop before we ask them to also absorb it and jump, I think is another logical progression on the way that I forgot to mention. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I watch my, I, I, I'll go to the playground and watch kids doing that jumping off of various things. Of course, they use their whole body when they land. They fold up like an accordion very skillfully. <laughs> but then yes. being able to do that and then have less knee bend and things like that over time is, you know, yeah. that, that being an important area of development to watch too. So, James, I wish I could talk to you about plyometrics for much longer. Sadly, uh, that's the end of the time I have for our chat today. No worries. I I really appreciate having you on. And thank you so much, yeah, for all sharing all your knowledge with us today. No, thanks for having me on. Appreciate the opportunity. Apologize it's taken uh, so long to actually get around to to fitting this in. It's great to have the opportunity to, to chat. Yeah, no worries. It was great talking to you today. Thanks for tuning into the show. We appreciate you all being here with us. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate that. And we'll see you all next week.